In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And today we've got a very special programme because we've got a very special guest. He's a good friend, he's another tour guide, but he is Spanish. And so today we're very pleased to welcome Fran Glaria. Hi, Fran. Hello, ladies. Thank you for hosting me. It's our pleasure. It's absolutely brilliant to have a, a new blatherer and a whole different aspect, you know, bringing in the Spanish-Scottish links. So I suppose when you think about it, we think that there's more differences. You know, we don't think there's very much in common at all. What do you think of when you think of Scotland, Fran? To tell you the truth, I live in the north of Spain. So for us, Scotland is not as far as, I mean, culturally, from somebody from the south of Spain. Here we're just a little bit of ocean apart. But when you think Scotland, the first thing that comes to our mind, the big icons, you know, the quilts, the bagpipe, the <laughs> whiskey. Then culturally, I mean, fun people, people that laughs, people that are not a stiff, you know, much more social people. So that's what comes to mind. We like that, Fran. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> have you visited Spain, Helen? You know, I was thinking I have never been to Spain. I must be one of the very few people in Scotland who has not been to Spain. No, I just haven't been to Spain. I've been to France, I've been to Italy, but not Spain. So, Fran, we'll have to do something about that. We have to do something, definitely. You need to come over as soon as possible. Yes, of course. <laughs> right. And Liz, you've been to Spain, though, haven't you? I have, I have. We can maybe come back to package holidays in, in a wee minute, but... We do appear so different, but we've got a lot in common. I mean, I think you've got part of, of Spain, Fran, where Galicia, where they actually have bagpipes. Yes. I mean, the thing is that all the north of Spain, we are culturally very similar to Scotland. All the way on the west of Spain, northern west, is uh, Galicia. And we do have bagpipes there. Uh, here on the Basque Country, for example, what we have is a lot of red hairs. And... Ah. When, we, when we have a red hair here, uh, we say they're Scottish. I mean, no matter where they're from, it's like red hair equals Scottish. In my family, we have, I have two brothers and they're red hair, red hair. I mean, they're not ginger, they're red. 
so we're very close. So it makes a little bit of sense that we have <laughs> a lot of your culture here. Yeah, I mean, Scotland, but when we have someone with ginger here, we call him a ginger. A ginger? <laughs> a ginger, <laughs> yeah. So you see ginger, then a ginger. That's my new word of the day, ginger. <laughs> I don't I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that because my one of my granddaughters has got beautiful red hair. So I better not call her a ginger. I'll just say she's got beautiful red hair. <laughs> uh, there are some beautiful colours of red. But of course that's what we would call our Celtic connection. And I think the, the Galicians they have a Celtic origin as well, haven't they? I mean with the rest yes. of the country as Moors and Iberians. Well, the thing is that all the north, you have to think that the year 711, when the Moors invaded Spain, well, Spain, Iberia, it yeah. took them less than three years to conquer all the all the Spain. But the thing is that the northern part very soon start having not having this culture because of the weather, because of uh, well, it was much more complicated to be up here for them. So they moved a little bit to the south. So all the northern part of Spain, we have Celtic heritage. I'm sure I read the word Celt was what the Romans called people north of the Mediterranean, and it really means barbarian. And as the Roman Empire extended across, all the Celts, all the barbarians, sort of moved west across Europe. And then, as you say, Fran, up the west side of the continent of Europe and then across and into southwest England at Cornwall and then up through Wales, Ireland, the west of Scotland. So culturally, that whole area from what you were saying to Fran, the west of Spain, northwest of Spain, up, has a very common theme. And I think at the bagpipe festivals that they have, there's a strong representation of Spain at them as, as there is from Brittany and France and from Scotland and Ireland. Here, the, the bagpipes are huge in the west of Galicia, but more and more it's getting... One of my brothers, one of the red hairs, he plays the bagpipe, which oh. is like, why do you do that? And he said that about five years ago, he was, you know, I want to play some instrument. He tried with a flute, he tried with drums. And he said, suddenly the bagpipe came into my hands and we fell in love. And now oh. he just plays the bagpipe. So. so he'll have to get in touch with my son, who also plays the bagpipe. So we could have a wee Spanish-Scottish duet. <laughs> <laughs> and see how different it sounds. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and does he wear the kilt? Yeah. He were, I mean, at least he's like six foot four and red hair and wearing a kilt and playing the bagpipe. And he wonders, how come people call me the Scottish? Oh, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, or the Scottish? Like, well, you look like it. Well, going back in history, I mean, there's been many, many links between the Scots and the Spanish. But I think what has brought us together, united, has been um, the English and gathering together against the English. Because going right back, um, the, the traditional Western powers were France, Spain and England. And Scotland was just a poor, tiny little country. But it was very important strategically because it could be a thorn in the side of England. And so both France and Spain would woo um, Scotland to try and get them on side so that they would attack the English and cause a, be a sort of decoy to allow the French and the Spanish to go about their business. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between the English and the French for us is kind of funny because we always say, okay, 
the two of you get together and you hate each other and you fight against each other and you leave us alone. So for us as the Scottish, she's like, okay, they're the normal people like us. It's not, <laughs> not English, not French. It's like, okay, just leave them fight with, them, with each other and that's going to be okay. So... And it was like that all down through history. And as I say, you know, Scotland formed the old alliance with France, but they also were very, very strong with, with Spain, strong links with Spain. In fact, one of the suitors for Mary, Queen of Scots, was Don Carlos, the son of King Philip of Spain. She rejected him and she went instead for Henry Lord Darnley, who was not really the best of people, but... I don't think Don Carlos was going to be any much, very much better. He was not a very clever man. That's... No, I, th I think that's what we're trying to say, Fran, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you may say it. I mean, we we say it as well. I think nowadays we would say he. I think he ended up in a secure unit. <laughs> <laughs> what we would say in Scotland is he wasn't the full shilling. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say? He wasn't the full shilling. A shilling is the old currency, like a, an old five pence. So he wasn't the full shilling. That's the way when we say somebody's not quite right. Or a sandwich short of a picnic. That's another good one, Helen. Yeah, a sandwich short of a picnic. But another good matrimony story when it comes to the links. The one I like is one of our most powerful kings was James the Fourth, And at that time, he was in a really powerful diplomatic position between France and Spain and England and, and uh, negotiating treaties. But France and Spain both wanted to secure his support through marriage. But the trouble was that it was Isabella and Ferdinand that were um, the king and queen at that time. And Ferdinand had run out of legitimate daughters to marry. So the ambassador suggested that there was an illegitimate daughter, Donna Juana, and that he, she was actually a legitimate daughter from a previous secret marriage. You know, so you can tell the Scots anything and they'll believe it. Well, James IV didn't anyway, so he held out and got uh, Henry VII of England. He got his daughter. I mean, I love those kings that they had legitimate kids, not legitimate. It was like, I'm a bastard. Oh, cool. You're a bastard. That was a good thing. I know it, it's strange. It's strange all this. but And I think one of the things that upset Henry VIII was I think he was kind of hoping that he would have some sway as well with the, the daughters of Spain. Well, you have to say that Spain became such a strong empire that everybody wanted a slice of it. So at the beginning, we started sending daughters to marry, and then everybody started sending daughters over here to marry to our king. So it's like you know, this trading poor princesses around Europe. So just think what could it could have been like. We might have had stronger links if we'd had a marriage back there in the, the 16th, 15th, 16th century. Yeah, we could have been together. Yeah, thinking about links today, one of the other things that brings us right up to date is about Scotland's bid for independence. And of course, you've got similar situation back in Spain, haven't you? Well, yeah, we do have big, big independence issues around Spain, especially where I come from. This is the Basque country. It's one of those places where that seeks for independence. And uh, well, in Spain, we have four official languages. In Spain, we speak Spanish. But in three different regions, in Galicia, here in the Basque Country, and in Catalonia, which is Barcelona. So, yes, there are three places, like, they want to get out of Spain as well. Quite controversial at this moment. Yeah, I think the same controversy. Yeah, I think they look to Scotland because Scotland least, at least has it written into the Constitution that we can go for a legal referendum 
you know, whether Boris will grant that or not is the big question. But you don't have that in your constitution. You? So you had the illegal referendum a few years ago. That's what happened in Catalonia in Catalonia two years ago, right before the pandemic. Uh, we had this issue that the Catalonians wanted to do a referendum and it's illegal to do a referendum like that in Spain. So, and the problem was that what were they fighting for? For the independency or for the right to have this referendum? So it was a big mess. It was a big, big, big problem. Yeah. And of course, Scotland at that time supported, you know, similar claims for independence. But we now have the situation that because Scotland voted to remain in the European Union when the UK voted to come out um, through Brexit, Scotland is desperate to have a membership um, of the EU and of course, Spain is highly unlikely to approve that. They're going to veto it because they don't want to give any any thoughts to their own separatists. Well, the thing is that here, we have, the problem we find is that the central government in Europe, they're not being clear on what to do with these parts. You, you have the right to do this referendum. Here, we don't. So we say, okay, Catalonia wants to get out of Spain. Would that let them be inside of Europe as an independent country. So that's, if Europe says, yes, they will be outside, then the Basque country will say, okay, we want out of Spain too, but we want inside of Europe. Galicia will want that too. Uh, the, all the different regions around Europe will have like 300 different countries, a small little country. So personally, and this is my opinion, I don't think that is the right way to do Europe. We, we cannot have 200 different voices or 300 different voices, one per region. I think I, I agree with you, Fran, because that, that was one of the things, because there, there is no guarantee. Scotland would have to, if Scotland did become independent, there was a suggestion that she would just go back into Europe because she said she always wanted to be in Europe. But you know, I think the powers that be say, no, you would have to apply and go through all the same channels as before to be looked at as a separate country. So it's not just because the UK, it's the UK who is, a, who is a member of the European Union, not Scotland, England, Ireland or Wales. It's the UK. I actually read something today in the Telegraph, which I didn't know. Um, and it, it was a document that had been signed by 150 people across Europe. I didn't know most of them who had signed it, but it was in support of Scotland getting membership of the EU. And what it was saying was that in the Brexit agreement, there was an agreement written in that if Northern Ireland ever ceased to be part of the United Kingdom, it would get automatic membership of the EU through Ireland. As the island of Ireland, yes. Yeah, so that kind of sets a precedent, which I didn't know about. Anyway, we're getting near, too near politics, Helen. Take us away. Take us another link. Where would you like to take us? Well, I, I would like to kind of stay a little bit on politics, but go back in time a little bit. And the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39, Fran, um, there were... A lot of people in Scotland who actually volunteered and went over to fight in the Spanish Civil War. There was reckoned about two and a half thousand from Britain, but a quarter of them were from Scotland. What? I, I didn't know. Who, who did they fight with? They fought against Franco, they, you, they, against fascism. They were over there because one of the reasons was that in Scotland, um, the reason people volunteered was that 
many of the volunteers had been previously involved in kind of socialist movement, labor struggles, and they believed that left-wing politics offered them escape from poverty. So they wanted to sort of say, look, you're not alone over there. We, we want to come and help you. And they actually went from working class backgrounds in the urban and industrialized side. They've, they've been with trade unions and all sorts. And they first of all, they saw, well, they saw extensive action in the battle of, help me with the pronunciation, Jarama. Jarama. Yes. High levels of Scottish casualties there. And the first organized group from Scotland was went over to Spain was the Scottish Ambulance Unit. Where, and they were organized and created by the ex-Lord Provost of Glasgow, who was also at that time Chancellor of the University of Glasgow. And the volunteers, the medics, the drivers, the nurses all travelled to Spain independently. And they worked in the battlefield conditions with very little equipment. But just on that, we have this part of the, what were called the in, international brigadiers or brigaders. And even the renowned Scottish Gaelic poet Sorley MacLean had strong sympathies with the Republicans. And a lot of his earlier poetry focused on the war, such as Cornford, about the British poets John Cornford and Julian Bell, and the Spanish writer Federico Garcia Lorca, who all died at the war. And Sorley MacLean also wrote another poem called The Choice, in which he expresses his disappointment in himself for not going to Spain and staying in Scotland. And we have on the banks of the River Clyde in Glasgow a beautiful sculpture sculpted by a communist artist, Arthur Dooley, in the 1970s. And it represents, now again, help me with the pronunciation, Dolores Ibarura. Ibaruri? Yeah, La Passionara. La Passionaria. Yeah, well, this female, this beautiful sculpture representing her um, on the banks of the River Clyde, um, just as a kind of memorial to her and to the people from Scotland who died in the Spanish Civil War. So there you are, brothers and sisters in arms standing together. The links are really strong there. And of course, you know, when it comes to fighting for freedom, there's nobody more well-known fighting for freedom than Robert the Bruce and um, Braveheart. And there's a good story there. Do you know that one, Fran? Well, uh, yes, I do. Uh, that is what, well, you explain it. And then I'll tell you about our Braveheart here. Okay, right. Well, King Robert the Bruce, what you probably know from, from Braveheart, which was a lot of fiction and not a lot of fact. But however, King Robert the Bruce was um, involved in the, the wars of independence in Scotland, where Scotland was fighting for freedom from the English. And there was the famous battle, the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. And they won that battle, they were successful, and they made their bid to the Pope to recognise Scotland as an independent country, which eventually it did come about. But a man that had been hardened by battle all his life, he hadn't had the opportunity to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And in those days, if you wanted to save your mortal soul and ensure a fast route through purgatory, you needed to have um, brownie points on your side. So when he was dying, and we think that Robert the Bruce died of leprosy, but while he was dying, he asked his best buddy, um, the Black Douglas, if he would take his heart on crusade. And he did that. And so the Scots were fighting as mercenaries against the Moors in Spain. And at the height of battle, 
Black Douglas took the casket with King Robert the Bruce's heart inside it and he threw it into the battle shouting, go forth, brave heart, which is where the expression came from. And so the heart went into battle and uh, Robert Bruce got his final dying wish and the heart was lifted back up again, put into the casket, brought home and it's now buried in Melrose Abbey. So it's quite a good story, but it's still marked in Spain, isn't it? Well, the thing is that here, well, it was it took place in, in Teba, uh, which is in the south of Spain. And the thing is that uh, the king, Alfonso XII, he was fighting against the Moors. So it was, it was not a crusade, but it was like a reconquest, the beginning of the reconquest. And for us, for example, when the movie Braveheart came out, everyone at the movies, we were looking at each other. It's like, who on earth is this guy? Wasn't Braveheart the king? It's like, so we were like, who? It's like, we didn't get it. I mean, it, I, I think most of the people in the movies, we went back home and go to the encyclopedia. Okay, who is Braveheart? And we realized that it was just a Hollywood thing. It was like, okay, we're talking different things. We were doing exactly the same thing in Scotland, trust me. So it was not only that, because it, for us, it's like, okay, you, we know a little bit about Scottish history. And the little things you know, suddenly you watch differently in the movies. It's like, what are we talking about? It's like, I don't get it. So, and you know that thanks to this uh, Robert the Bruce issue, that getting his heart and going to war, a king from here, from Navarre, we're talking before Spain was Spain. He saw this, that his heart was taken to battle and then it was buried somewhere else. So a king from here, Charles III of Navarre, where before he died, he asked that his heart had to be removed from his body because he, as a king, he had to be buried at Pamplona's Cathedral, the capital of the kingdom, but his heart belonged to somewhere else. And he said, okay, if Robert the Bruce has done it, I can do it too. So he asked and he wrote all the, on his will who had to take his heart out, where he wanted it. So thanks to that, thanks to him, uh, our kings for almost 200 years had their hearts removed and buried wherever they wanted. So thank you for that beautiful tradition. Oh, that's really interesting. And of course, Robert the Bruce's heart was buried in Melrose because that's where the Black Douglas, that's Black Douglas country. So he's buried with the bones, with the bones of the Black Douglas. They were both, it was all brought back to Scotland. But Robert the Bruce himself is buried in Dunfermline. I have visions of this heart kicking about in the middle of a battle and somebody saying, whoa, whoa, just a minute, just a minute, picking the heart up, putting it back in the casket and taking it back to Scotland. It's kind of a little gory. But... <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, but, but it's romantic. I mean, it looks sounds good. But what they did, Fran, maybe, maybe you'd, you're not aware of this, but in the recent past, they were doing some excavations and they dug up the casket in Melrose Abbey and they had it carbon dated and they know that it is of exactly the right era. So therefore, the story matches you know, the heart and the wow. burial of the heart. So they're, they're quite confident of that, that it is King Robert the Bruce's heart that came back from Tiba to Scotland. Wow. That's, I mean, after being in battle and rolling around the <laughs> crowd, it's like, okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually been to Tiba, 
But I have been to, to Spain many, many times. And I, I think if we talk about links between Spain and Scotland, we have to come right up to package holidays because that is why most Scots know Spain. We just we live in a cold, wet climate and any opportunity to get some sunshine and we are there. So in the up until the 60s, it was really the only the rich and the elite that could go on holiday. But they made a change to the aviation regulations, which meant that you could charter flights. And so in the 60s, suddenly Europe and in particular Spain opened up and the Scots found the costas and we invaded. At that time, there must have been huge changes going on in Spain. Okay, it was the end of Franco's dictatorship. So it was when it started opening up and people started coming. And there was thousands of Scots coming to Spain. Uh, okay, so hopefully you don't, you don't get offended by this. But we, we call you guys the, how do you say, the, uh, the crabs? You know what? You know the crab, the river crabs. The, crabs, the, crabs, cra yeah, crabs. <laughs> when you cook them, they turn red, 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 yeah. red. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> so when you see a scot in the sun, it's like, please put protection. Back then it was oh. no protection, and they would scots would be so incredibly red. It was like <laughs> we're much more darker our skin, so it was like super red. Okay, there goes another crab. I know crab with a B, okay, with a B. <laughs> Cangrejo, we say. <laughs> and of course, the Scots didn't know how to pronounce it. So, I mean, I can remember it would have been the late 60s, early 70s. You know, I, I, my father worked for British Rail. And so we had continental passes, which meant that you could travel by rail all the way down through Europe. And there was a package company called Panorama who ran special real holidays for British real workers. So I did go to Spain quite early on, but it was by rail all the way through to Perpignan in France. And then you would get the coach and you would get off and you would go to basically Costa Brava. So it was Lorette and Rosas and whatever. But my friend was flying, which was very, very, very sophisticated. And her parents took her and it was basically Mallorca. But of course, at that time, we didn't know how to pronounce it. So it was Majorca. Majorca, yes. We were going to Majorca. <laughs> Majorca. No, Majorca. <laughs> but Liz, if you remember, it became even worse. Majorca, Majorca, Majorca. Majorca. And of course, with the 60s, you know, sort of changing social norms as well. So it was the young um, that were going across there and all of these hotels that were springing up out of absolutely nowhere this enormous building boom and of course people were looking to go there but to have all their home comforts so you saw these restaurants with their full English breakfasts and anybody that was going to Spain would always say now make sure you take your Thai food tea bags and your Heinz beans you know so you need your home comforts while you're there <laughs> yeah I mean for us here it's like okay you go to a Spanish place and you find uh, baked beans it's like what is this and I remember being a kid and seeing you eating toast with beans on top. I'm like, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> How could they eat that? <laughs> Perhaps that's not that bad. <laughs> it was quite interesting. I read, I read somewhere that it was General Franco who saw tourism as a way of enriching what he called a backward nation. That was what he was thinking of Spain. And then it was also again into the... 1960s that one of the tour operators here Clarkson's they just you know, just grew hugely you know, they actually started funding the building of hotels in Spain you know sort of pilot high sell it cheap 
in, in terms of package holidays. And they funded, and especially in Benidorm, which is why you get that great skyscraper community in Benidorm of these hotels that were built by British tour operators. Well, there, I mean, my grandparents used to have a house there in Benidorm and we would go absolutely every summer. And there were communities of Scots, of uh, German and people, like all the Scottish people would come and they would stay in like one huge hotel and they would live there and they do the whole thing in there. Which was for us, we would go to these hotels to, we are from a small city and in 1980s, Spain was super behind. And we would go to these hotels to try different food, like, I don't know, brassworts or beans. It's like <laughs> Beans on toast. Well, exotic things for us back then. <laughs> for you, it's normal. But for us, it's like, oh, baked beans on toast. What is that? So, fried eggs for breakfast. For us, it's like the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Oh, we're going to have a Scottish breakfast. It's like oh, beans and eggs. It's like, whoa. It was like a huge celebration. <laughs> we used to love it. I think what, what's good now, I go to Spain a lot, either down to the south to just outside Estepona, or every year we go to Mallorca, but we go out of season. And I think when we when you go now to these places, even Benidorm and Torremolinos, which had a bad reputation as well, they have done so much to restore these beautiful coastal areas now and, you know, the big long promenades and everything. So it's a pleasure to go. Yes. I mean, for many years, really, we just wanted to have numbers. A lot of people coming to Spain and see the coast, the coast, the coast. But, and it was getting cheaper and cheaper tourism. Now they have realized that there are other countries along the Mediterranean that can be much cheaper. So what do we need to do to attract people? Make it nicer, safer, and that's why we're beginning to have beautiful promenades and everything is getting much more organized and everything is amazing now. There's just there's one problem for the Scots, and that is the rivalry with the Germans. Because the Scots culture and the German culture just clashes. So you have the, the sunbed wars where you know the, the Germans are up at six o'clock in the morning putting their, their towels down on the sunbed and the Scots are rolling in from the bars at seven o'clock in the morning, throwing the towels into the pool. You know, so you have this this bitter rivalry all over Spain. <laughs> yeah, you are right with that. <laughs> when people I mean if people get to come here and they see these things, like, okay, the, here comes the Germans going like super early in the morning to put the towels. I was like, why are you doing that? It's like, take it easy. We're Spanish. Take it easy. You know, you can go a little later. No, 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 no. It must have been really interesting to observe, you know, the different cultural mores, the different ways. But one of the things, maybe just going back a bit, the Spaniards you know, came to Scotland quite a bit. And one of the big times that they came to Scotland was during the 1700s when you were part of the Jacobite uprisings. And that's another time in Scotland, yes, that uh, where they were trying to restore the Stuart kings. And, Sp and Spain was very sympathetic to the exiled Stuarts at that time. And they supported James the Seventh, Eighth would be at that time, at 1719. This was another way of getting back at the English. They were trying to invade England, but they thought they would send some people up to help with the Jacobite uprising, you know, come in at the from the north to the English. But one of the most picturesque castles in Scotland, Elandonan Castle, that was occupied by the Spanish during the 1719 and eventually blown up by the English 
to try and get the Spanish out of there. Just quite, quite fantastic, you know, the, the links that are there. But the Battle of Gledshiel was the battle that the Spanish took part in just in the Highlands, quite near the west, quite near the, the way over to Skye, actually. The Battle of Gledshiel had a Spanish contingent in there. Well, for the Spanish kingdom and the Spanish empire, always, I mean, we would ally with the people that were going against uh, the UK, because the, the Brits, because if we help you, you are going to invade them and they're going to be weaker. So that was, it made a lot of sense. If you want power, align with the people that are going against that the other empire. And what you're saying is absolutely correct because at the Battle of Glenshield, the Jacobites were defeated. But what happened a few months later? The British naval expedition captured the Spanish port of Vigo, is that how you pronounce it? V-I-G-O? Mm -hmm. Vigo. Um, and held it for 10 days and destroyed vast quantities of stores and equipment. And then they re-embarked unopposed. You know, so you're quite, you're right. If you go against England, they'll come and get you. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, you're right. I was just reflecting, coming right up to date on the similarities and sport, we've got a lot of similarities in common. Um, tennis, of course, we've got Andy Murray. Who have you got? Uh, we have Nadal, Rafa Nadal. And then in the football, you've got El Clásico. El Clásico, Real Madrid-Barcelona. Yeah, which is the big, big, we would call it a derby match. But in, in Scotland, um, we have what's called the Old Firm. And the Old Firm is Rangers and Celtic, which are both teams that play in the city of Glasgow. And so that is a huge rivalry. But unfortunately, yours, yours is more, uh, how, would you, how would you describe El Clasico? What is it that basically makes that such an important match? Well, the thing is that they're the two more iconic teams in Spain. They're, they have the best soccer players and it's a huge thing. So always when they play against each other, it is a great, no matter who wins, it is a big match. And in Spain, as they are the two number ones, they're like, the biggest ones we always know is that in the La Liga, with this uh, La Liga, it's the the tournament that we play here. The one of the two is going to win, and so we don't care. It's going to be one year Real Madrid, the next year is going to be Barcelona. That's pretty much how it works. So the thing is that the people that we are from small cities, you are you follow your local team, but you support either Madrid or Barcelona. So when we have El Clasico, where we have the two big teams fighting against each other, the country stops. Everybody is watching that game. It's incredible. And is it is it a positive? Is it, Are there undertones of you know negative or is it a positive? You see, this is what is wrong with the old firm match because the old firm match is rooted in sectarianism, in religion, and so it spills over into violence. And um, so it's, it's, it's not something that's really celebrated in Scotland. Well, I think they've cleaned it up an awful lot. The sectarianism has been, you know, desperately, the, the football league and everybody's desperately trying to eliminate any thought of that. It's a hard uphill battle for them. And the old firm match now is is still a huge, intense rivalry. But I think that they've tried very hard to make sure that it's not as it was, say, 20, 30, 50 years ago, which was really the place you emptied Glasgow. You didn't go there if you weren't going to the match. Well, here, uh, unfortunately, it's becoming a political issue because Madrid, it is the central government. 
and Barcelona is Catalonia, which is the separatist part. So unfortunately, it's beginning to turn more politics than any other thing. So not a good thing. No, it's not. It's one of the the blights that, has, as Helen says, working hard. But it is it's the it's where it comes from. It's the two parts of Glasgow. One was very much the Ulster Protestants coming across from from Northern Ireland. The other was the Catholics coming from the Republic of Ireland. And they were both located in different areas of Glasgow and both rallied around their local teams, um, which is is. Uh, but it has come on as we we move further and further away from those times. It has become much less fraught than it once was but moving on from that the other one you know if we want to show in Scotland if we want to have a demonstration of strength or speed or agility then we have our Highland Games and I think you have something in your hometown Fran well we ran with bulls because that's <laughs> crazy enough exactly so we're united in craziness <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean here it's like really the crazy things I am from Pamplona, the city of the riding of the bulls. I am from, for one week, from July 6th all the way to July 14th, every single morning we have six bulls riding in the streets, going like crazy, and it is a lot of fun. It's one of these ancestral things that we still do, and it's, I don't know, I love it. By the way, unfortunately, this last week, our mayor has just suspended the riding of the bulls for 2021. Oh, has We're he? We're not going to have it. Uh... Yeah. Well, next year will be a big one, though. Well, some of our some of our Highland Games are are planning to go ahead, but others are cancelled already. So, yeah, it's affecting everything, but we'll get there. And on a positive note, just finishing up, um, national drinks. You have sherry, and yes. we have whiskey, but the two are forever united in a symbiotic relationship because, of course, the flavour from whiskey comes from the wooden oak casks that it's stored in. And traditionally, it was sherry casks. Yeah, well, here what we say, okay, f- to do the, sh- the sherry, we call it Jerez. And it has to be a very aged casket, uh, barrel. And it uses many, many times. And then what do you do with it? Well, instead of throwing them away, you we ship them to Scotland and you would use them for whiskey, which was perfect because you need to age it. So, yeah, we're united with that too. But then the, the Spanish government went and passed a law which said that the sherry had to be bo- had to be bottled before it was exported. So that did away mm. with the, the need for casks. So that was a bit of a bummer for the Scots. So, um, but they have actually, they've gone back and they, they're working with the, the cooperages and the um, bodegas in Spain to um, get the, the casks. You know, they, they slosh sherry around inside of them and impregnate it before they now ship them across. So it is it is gaining in popularity again to use sherry casks. But you know, Liz, all this all this talk of drink has just reminded me I have been to Spain, Fran. I have been. And what reminded me <laughs> you just she just <laughs> can't remember any of it. No, Helen. Was there a lot of drinking <laughs> that time? Yes, <laughs> I sailed I sailed over to Spain. And not only did we forget the, the the charts to get into Spain, we were trying to get to Corona, but in actual fact, we went south of that. We came in somewhere. We don't know where it was, but we had to jump off the boat and swim ashore <laughs> and ask where we were. But the other thing is that why, why I don't remember so much about it and why drink reminded me was that we saw another boat from Glasgow, the Clyde, the Clyde uh, Cruising Club flag on it. So we swam over and went on board and uh, drank. Now, 
Fundador Brandy. Does that does that ring Fundador? a bell? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's the think, brandy. Just... Yeah. So so we drank that and then and I have been to Spain. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I mean, if you drank Fundador Brandy, no wonder you forgot everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just, I just say typical daughter of the rock. You know, if she's going to be there, she's going to be drinking the best brandy. <laughs> so I think on that point, we'll come to our word of the week. Lead us off, Helen. What's your word of the week? Well, I was thinking, reflecting on Fran talking about the the Scots with the red hair and being like crabs or like lobsters uh, in the sun, and I was just thinking, oh. They just got themselves fair reed raw, red raw, you know, bright red, and the skin was raw, reed raw. Oh, it makes you twin, yeah. makes you wince just thinking about it. Now, I was, I, I was trying to reflect on something that was package holidays, and in Scotland, in the different cities, we have what are called trades holidays. Um, so that was when the factories and the offices closed down and everything closed for two weeks, traditionally a fortnight. So in Glasgow, we call that the fair fortnight. Um, so it was linked to Glasgow Fair, where there would have been a traditional fair. But still to this day, the main um, is the first, first two weeks in July. That's the Glasgow Fair. And traditionally on Glasgow Fair, they would have gone doing the water. We've talked about that before, going down the Clyde. But from the 60s onwards, it wasn't going to do in the water. It was going to Majorca. That's right. And okay. Fran, any, anything, any words of wisdom from Spain? Yes. Here in Spain, when somebody is very annoyed and it's very loud, it's like nonstop, we say, me estás tocando la gaita, which means you're playing the bagpipe. <laughs> <laughs> With all this noise, crazy noise, it's like, stop playing the bagpipe. That's what we say. So... Back to you. <laughs> That's well, I hope nobody thinks we've been playing the bagpipes on this episode, but it's been a huge amount of fun. For, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been an amazing pleasure. I was really scared to be with the two of you such professional <laughs> podcasters. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so no, thank no, you it's... for hosting me today. And thank you, Fran, for coming along. That's been great. Anytime. Thank you. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the moo from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.